All right, let's take a moment to do the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week last week for Britain's Prince Charles, who expressed that he feels he has got away with it quite lightly for a man of 71, referring to the fact that he contracted COVID-19 in mid-March. He, however, has not yet regained his sense of taste or smell. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for men who like cats with the news that research has found that women are less attracted to men who pose with their cats in dating profiles. Reportedly, men with cats were judged by many women to be more agreeable and open, but less masculine, more neurotic, and less dateable. And it was an ugly week last week for the Segway Personal Transporter, which reportedly will cease production on July 15th. Hail that it's launched 20 years ago as a device so revolutionary that cities would be designed around it. The gyroscopically stable devices will be mainly remembered as Kevin James's preferred conveyance in Mall Cop and Mall Cop 2. You know, we were doing this program when the rollout to the Segway was <laughs> announced. Its inventor, Dean Kamen, had hinted very seriously in press releases that this thing was going to be huge. He described it as bigger than the Internet. That, of course, got people's attention. So when they started looking at what patents he'd taken out, they were surprised to find out that they seemed to be in the realm of scooters. Now, this does come from August 26th of last year. Matto started off the clip by talking about the incident over Greenland. You remember where the former New York real estate whiz expressed an interest in buying Greenland. Now, this surprised the government of Denmark, which controls Greenland because they hadn't put it up for sale. Now, at the time, it looked a little crazy, but... As we here at Radio Parallax take a look back 11 months, we'd say it's maybe even crazier than we thought. The president soon after traveled to Europe for a G7 summit meeting, and, well, we're going to turn this over to Rachel Maddow. I know we've gotten used to this kind of thing, but it is nuts. It was also nuts this weekend at the G7 when President Trump was asked if he attended the meeting at the G7 that was about climate. Um, the president responded by saying that that meeting had not yet happened yet, that it was going to be next, the next thing, like the next thing in the future. In fact, the meeting had already happened, and he just hadn't been there. Then the White House press secretary put out a formal statement explaining that the reason the president hadn't gone to the climate session was not because it was still in the future, as far as he was concerned, but instead because at the time of the climate meeting, he was busy. He was having bilateral meetings with the leaders of India, and Germany. Well, here's a picture of the climate meeting that he didn't go to. There's the leader of Germany in the purple there. That's the leader of India in the black. The Indian and German leaders were there. President Trump didn't skip the climate meeting so he could meet with the two of them. They were at that meeting. Had he been meeting with them, he'd have to do it there because that's where they were. 
He's the only one who wasn't there. His empty chair is there instead. It was also nuts when the president was asked by a reporter at the G7, Mr. President, any second thoughts on escalating the tri trade war with China? And he answered, yeah, sure, why not? The reporter followed up, second thoughts? Yes? The president said, might as well, might as well. The reporter tried again, you have second thoughts about escalating the war with China? The president's response, I have second thoughts about everything. At which point somebody distantly in the room started laughing out loud because they couldn't control themselves. I mean, if this were anybody involved in, you, in the United States government in any official capacity who spoke this way publicly at an international gathering like this, right, their colleagues or their superiors or at least security would, like, lift them up by the armpits and rush them out the door, right, until they could be revived or given medical treatment. In this case, it's the president, and everybody goes, like, okay, I guess their new line is the American president has second thoughts about everything. When the president doesn't show up for meetings, we'll just make stuff up about it, that meeting having not happened or him having been somewhere where he wasn't. I mean, after the president told reporters explicitly he was having second thoughts about his new tariffs on China, the administration had to figure out what they were going to do with that one, right? I have second thoughts about everything. Uh, they quickly mounted this sort of cleanup effort. 3.02 p.m., Larry Kudlow went on CNN to explain that maybe the president had just given that answer to reporters because he didn't really know what the question was. Maybe that's a good explanation. So the president said that he's having second thoughts about escalating the trade war. Why? Well, look, if I can reinterpret that, I mean, he spoke to us. He didn't exactly hear the question. If I could reinterpret that. He didn't hear that was 3.02 p.m. By 3.04 p.m., it was the Treasury Secretary on Fox News also trying to explain away whatever it was the president had just said about his second thoughts and how he, he didn't really mean that at all. Whatever it was he said, he didn't mean it or he didn't hear the question or if he did hear the question, his answer shouldn't be reinterpreted without me here to tell you what he might have meant. By the following morning, the president was back in form, um, apparently making this up completely out of whole cloth. China called last night our top trade people and said, let's get back to the tables. China called last night? You received a phone call from China, from the Chinese government. This is big news. Are, are you sure? Mr. President, I asked you, um, could you tell us a little bit more about the call you referred to? When will the next round of negotiations with well, China start? Well, we've gotten two calls and very, very good calls, very productive calls. There were no calls, actually. There were no calls, at least according to China. Uh, China. Chinese government said they are unaware of whatever these mystery calls are that the president is claiming to have received from the Chinese government on Sunday night. They're like, I don't know who called you or who they said they were, but it wasn't us. Did you really think it was us? Who told you we got calls? Did you think you took the call? Do you remember putting the phone to your face and talking into it? Was, was there anybody there? I mean... In the space of 30 seconds there, he goes from it being a call that we got last night to two calls and very good calls. China says it was no calls, and China would know since that's who supposedly called. The White House has been unable to produce any evidence to contradict what China, China says about its own behavior. Anyway, when the president refers to, you know, getting two calls from China that the Chinese deny making and refers to them as very, very good calls, 
this does remind one of what people with dementia will do when you ask them about something they said or did. They may try and cover by saying things exactly like there were a couple of calls and they were very, very good calls. There are some analyses on the internet of, of, of people who, who take a look at mental status and, and, and the decline in mental status. And they have noted the profound changes that have taken place in Donald Trump's speech over the years. What really struck me in looking at some of these was how often he uses words of one or two syllables. Words of three syllables are rare, unless they're tremendous, which is frankly a workhorse word, but you hardly ever find words of four syllables. Anyway, that's about all we have to say on on that particular subject today, but I think we should go back to Rachel Maddow for one more little bit. Some of the things the president publicly lied about this weekend appear to be just completely unforced errors, not just lies, but lying non sequiturs. Uh, I mean, here's one the White House has tried to clean up just because it was so weird and also because the First Lady has staff that answer to her and so sometimes stuff about her has to get cleaned up. I mean, look at the headline here. White House clarifies that Melania Trump has not met Kim Jong-un. What? Yeah, Trump just volunteered to reporters apropos of nothing this weekend. The First Lady has gotten to know Kim Jong-un and I think she would agree with me. He's a man with a country that has tremendous potential. Quote, as Trump mentioned his wife, a camera cut to Melania in the audience, who cocked her head slightly and looked somewhat quizzically at the president. Several hours later, as the president and the first lady flew back to Washington, the White House press secretary issued a statement that came with a tiny souvenir bucket and mop for those whose job it is to send out stuff like this all the time now. That's not true about the bucket and mop, but the statement is real. This is the statement. While the first lady has not met Kim Jong-un, the president feels like she's gotten to know him. Anyway, when, when you tell the public that your wife has gotten to know Kim Jong-un and your wife has never met Kim Jong-un, well, admittedly, it, it's, it's a little bit wacky. But of course, it might be a lot worse than wacky. It might be dementia. As we noted at the top of the program, Donald J. Trump said yesterday that he hopes the virus will go away. And in fairness, here at Radio Parallax, both Ms. Merlin and I share that view. We, too, hope it will go away. We would also like nickel beer night. We'd like to win the lottery. We'd like to never have an illness again and live to be 118. But frankly, hope isn't enough. More needs to be done. And what I think we all need to do, dear listener, is to pay attention to what makes sense in the future. If you go out, and, and I am and, and going to go out, well, I, I mean, by that I mean I'm going to leave my house, as I have been, and when I do, I'm going to try and wear a mask, I'm going to take plenty of hand sanitizer, and I'm going to try to exercise social distancing. While I am hoping the virus goes away, We're all going to have to make decisions in the weeks and months to come because the truth of the matter is this thing is not going to go away anytime soon. Writing in Slate.com, ER doctor Amita Sudhir said, Responsible people take risks all the time in the course of normal life. And as responsible people, out of regard for ourselves and for others, we take steps to mitigate those risks. We drive, but wear seatbelts. We bike to work, but wear helmets. We drink alcohol, but don't get behind the wheel of a car right afterwards. 
We have swimming pools in our yards, but have fences around them. So, can we return to some semblance of normal, but do it without endangering ourselves or others? Said the doctor, for every activity I think about going back to, I consider the opportunity cost. For example, just as Virginia began to ease restrictions, a local sports club reopened its outdoor tennis courts. I called a friend and we played tennis for an hour. We were well over six feet apart, and although we obviously had indirect contact through the balls, we were careful not to touch our faces, and we washed our hands afterward. I felt safe and also exhilarated. Did I absolutely need to play tennis? Of course not. Was it terribly risky? Probably not. Did it make me happy? Undoubtedly it did. And we are all in need of a little happiness right now. And should you get an antibody test? New scientists went off on that subject uh, at, at some length. And mostly it was not particularly useful, the whole piece, but, well, a few little items were. It noted that it can take several weeks to produce antibodies, so there's little point in doing an antibody test during or soon after an illness. Of course, the big question in everybody's mind is, can an antibody tell you if you're immune? And the answer is no. A positive test may not mean a person is immune, according to the UK's Medicine and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency. MHRA. People who have recovered should be immune for a while, but we don't know how long immunity against this coronavirus lasts. With other coronaviruses, studies show people can be reinfected as soon as six months after the initial infection. Now, I received an email from somebody poo-pooing a lot of this, a very smart person as well, that was saying that nobody out there has been shown to get it a second time. Well, maybe not definitively yet, but Animal studies are showing that it is possible. This piece by Michael LePage also answered the question of, aren't there home testing kits? The answer to that was the antibody tests designed to be done at home haven't proved reliable so far. To which we would add, save your money. We are fortunate here in the United States that unlike Britain, which depends mainly on its national government for health care matters, which is good and bad, Here in America, we have a lot of input from state and local authorities, which frankly have stepped in to fill the gap again and again. But in terms of saving us from uh, federal government, shall we say, gaffes, I'm looking down another item from New Scientist magazine, which I can't resist mentioning. We spoke a moment ago about the president's suggestion last year that we drop hydrogen bombs into hurricanes. Now, if you do the math on how much energy is in a hurricane, you will find out surprisingly that it is considerably more than that of your basic H-bomb. I know, that's surprising, isn't it? But the truth is natural phenomenon like hurricanes and earthquakes involve tremendous amounts of energy when you do the math. When Trump said that last year, you can find various clips on YouTube (laughs) where they, they took a look at it. Suffice it to say that the punchline to all of it is that no, you in fact would not stop the hurricane, but you would, on the other hand, make it radioactive. Anyway, noted the feedback section of New Scientist. Feedback tries insofar as possible to steer clear of politics, but occasionally we find ourselves sailing a little close to the wind. Never more so, perhaps, than this week as we report on the story that a U.S. member of Congress has proposed a bill to ban the president from using a nuclear weapon inside a hurricane. (laughs) Noted the magazine in classic British understatement, you may feel that such a bill is unnecessary, 
saying that it might rank for senselessness alongside a law to prevent the president from eating the nuclear football. Yet, notes New Scientist Representative Sylvia Garcia disagrees. In light of President Donald Trump's alleged suggestion during last year's hurricane season, it wasn't alleged, he, he said it, that every atmospheric weather phenomenon is secretly in want of a radioactive explosion somewhere in its insides, she decided to write legislation to ensure that such a thing never takes place. Now, according to the Washington Post, the bill has no co-sponsors and no hearing date and appears unlikely to make it out of committee anytime soon. Still notes the magazine provides useful publicity for Representative Garcia and a timely reminder that he who sows the wind with uranium-235 must reap the whirlwind of congressional disapproval. By the way, with hydrogen bombs, your problem of radioactive contamination are, are, not, are not so bad on the nature of the fusion reaction. The trouble is no one's figured out how to set off a hydrogen bomb without first setting off a fission bomb. Fission weapons use uranium-235 or plutonium. So yes, you'd have a certain amount of nuclear contamination if you tried such a stunt. Mr. McMillan notes that in the event of a Trump re-election, he would feel safer if that bill got out of committee. And, and in case you thought that there wasn't much threat anymore from nukes in the atmosphere, keep in mind that there is talk currently about the restarting of nuclear testing in Nevada. According to The Economist, in May, and they're citing the Washington Post, American officials considered conducting a, quote, rapid test to demonstrate the country's nuclear prowess with the intention of forcing Russia and China into trilateral nuclear talks, something that China has thus far resisted. Now, the piece is a little bit vague about whose bright idea this is. Let's just say we have our suspicions about which American officials they might be referring to, particularly in view of the fact that the piece also contains the following. Unsurprisingly, the Department of Energy, which oversees nuclear weapons and its laboratories like Los Alamos in New Mexico, is not keen on this idea, nor are the Pentagon or the armed forces. Last June 16th, a dozen distinguished scientists, many formerly associated with America's nuclear laboratories, wrote an open letter to Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader, this is because there are now sophisticated ways to inspect and improve nuclear weapons without setting them off. In the case that hasn't got you worried at all, how about this item from the Associated Press from May 24th? Time is running out on an arms control treaty that, if it's allowed to expire, will leave the world with no legal restrictions on U.S. and Russian nuclear weapons for the first time in nearly half a century. If Donald Trump doesn't extend the new Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, the only remaining U.S.-Russia arms control pact, or succeed in negotiating a replacement, it will expire on February 5th, 2021. Russia, if you're keeping score, has offered to extend New START for up to five years, but Trump is holding out. He thinks China, which is expected to double its stockpile of nuclear weapons in the next decade, should have to sign on to a nuclear arms control accord, too. Well, maybe, but in the meantime, shouldn't we renew this one? We'd like to see him negotiate something with his good friend, Vladimir Putin, after which we can say, who was that masked man? And we're not going to say too much about this today, but there is a supposedly well-documented news item coming out of Afghanistan that certain funds from Russia were paid to the Taliban as a bounty for Americans killed. 
since Vladimir Putin would like to see Donald Trump reelected. Oh, and by the way, they just had an election in Russia where Putin has now been extended in terms of his leadership till the year 2036. As a friend of mine from Europe pointed out, Russia is going back to the Soviet Union. I have to say, at least in terms of how power is being wielded at the top, you'd have to agree. We do have to express a certain skepticism at this story. It does supposedly go back to intelligence sources, which would raise the possibility, at least in some minds, that the deep state is taking action against Donald Trump. By the way, we've never poo-pooed the concept of the deep state on this program. But boy, some of the things that are said about it are... Anyway, how cuckoo is this? According to the Boston Globe, the Voice of America may be turning into the Trump News Network. After a long battle, the Trump administration has succeeded in installing right-wing ideologue Michael Pack, an ally of white nationalist Steve Bannon, as the head of the U.S. Agency for Global Media. That is the agency which controls the Voice of America, Radio Free Asia, Radio Free Europe, and other parts of the global news service that reaches 280 million people in 60 different countries. In giving citizens of other countries news from America's point of view, these outlets have always operated supposedly free of government interference. I think that is a bit of a stretch. Nevertheless, it is surprising sometimes what they've been willing to broadcast on the VOA. Things we dare say that we would expect a government like Russia would probably not let get out. But note to the Boston Globe, that is now likely to change. Trump was infuriated by the VOA's coverage of the coronavirus outbreak. He says it failed to blame China. Michael Pack immediately began a purge and officials of the news operations are already being replaced by Steve Bannon allies and ideological extremists. An exultant Steve Bannon proclaimed, now patriots can begin the process of cleaning up the mess. The Boston Globe editors said that Congress needs to conduct an inquiry to see whether the $635 million in taxpayer funds the VOA has requested will pay for, quote, something they can be proud of, unquote, or whether it will serve as a propaganda outlet for one man, Donald Trump. Now, I have to say, I don't go in very much for gambling, but uh, this kind of reminds me of that line from the W.C. Fields movie, where he's sitting at a table, a fistful of playing cards in his hand, to which a spectator asks, is this a game of chance? To which Fields replies, not the way I play, no. So we're very confident that the VOA's output is not going to be something we could be proud of and will, in fact, serve as a propaganda outlet for one man. And by the way, the vote on this went along party lines 12 to 10 via the Republican-controlled Senate Foreign Relations Committee. The conservative documentary filmmaker Michael Pack's nomination had been under consideration for nearly two years. It was held up in part because of concerns from Democrats over alleged financial self-dealing in his business. And wouldn't you know it, Michael Pack apparently has a cloud hanging over him about various uh, financial dealings. He evidently has a film company and also operates a nonprofit organization. According to the ranking Democratic member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Bob Menendez, 
Pack's film company, Manifold Productions, received millions in grants from his nonprofit. Yet he repeatedly told the IRS there was no relationship between the two when, in fact, he ran both. Menendez said that Pack has yet to correct misinformation provided to the IRS and to the committee regarding the status of his tax returns. Pack wouldn't respond to an interview request from NPR which noted that the people swept out by him include those who have received praise for helping their networks fight misinformation from China and Russia with factual reporting. They included officials appointed during the Trump presidency. Reporting on this episode, The Economist said, Mr. Pack, a filmmaker and ex-president of the paleo-conservative Claremont Institute, is a close ally of Steve Bannon, formerly the president's chief strategist. On June 15th, the director of VOA resigned, Two days later, Mr. Pack fired the heads of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and four other organizations in his purview, Radio Free Asia, the Middle East Broadcasting Network, the Office of Cuba Broadcasting, and the Open Technology Fund, which builds software for secure news gathering. Noted The Economist, government interference in news gathering and editorial decisions is prohibited by law, but firing the directors sent a clear signal. They added, to those who rely on the American news agencies, it all seemed dismally familiar. In Romania, Bulgaria, Hungary, or Russia, the sequence is routine. An independent news outlet is taken over by allies of an oligarch or political party. The editors resign or are fired. Next comes an abrupt shift to a government-friendly editorial line. Can the same happen in America? I never imagined I'd be witnessing something like this, said Marius Dragomir of the Central European University in Budapest. They note that part of the anxiety stems from Mr. Pack's CV. The Claremont Institute has produced some of the most radical alt-right thinking in the Trump era. In 2016, it published The Flight 93 Election, an essay arguing that Hillary Clinton's election would lead to the destruction of America. Last April, the White House unexpectedly attacked VOA for allegedly praising China's response to COVID-19. It had republished an innocuous Associated Press article on the reopening of businesses in Wuhan. Suddenly, Republicans pushed Mr. Pack through on a party-line vote. This is a story we should keep our eye on and which we here at Radio Parallax vow to monitor. Oh, And the Trump administration also wants to kill off Stars and Stripes, the armed forces' own newspaper. A lot of America's legendary reporters wrote for Stars and Stripes at one point, including Andy Rooney. Now, we're not sure what it is that Team Trump has against Stars and Stripes, other than the fact that it might from time to time accurately report the news. But at the moment, it appears that Congress is not willing to go along with this action. We'll see. All right, in the minute or two we have left, we need to talk about something else, for God's sakes. And unfortunately, it has to be, in this case, an obituary. The great Carl Reiner passed away this week at the age of 98. He was described as one of show business's best-liked men. Described as an ingenious and versatile writer, actor, and director, he broke through as second banana to Sid Caesar on the legendary show of shows in the 1950s, and he rose to comedy's front ranks as the creator of The Dick Van Dyke Show. I did not realize, although I think at some point along the way I did see the original pilot for The Dick Van Dyke Show, which, in which Reiner was casting himself as the lead. Apparently back in July 1960, when they aired the version of Rob Petrie being played by Reiner, 
CBS executives worried that Reiner would make the lead character seem too Jewish. So they cast Dick Van Dyke. Sid Caesar's Your Show of Shows was a smash hit back in the 1950s. I remember my parents talking about how much they enjoyed it. Had a hell of a writing team. Larry Gelbart, Neil Simon, Woody Allen, Mel Brooks. At some point along the way, Brooks and Reiner got together to invent some improv comedy based on the 2,000-year-old man. After they performed the bit at a party, Steve Allen insisted they turn their banter into a record. The album, 2,000 Years with Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks, appeared in 1960 and was the start of a million-selling franchise. Carl Reiner also gave us Rob Reiner, director of The Princess Bride and our personal favorite, This is Spinal Tap. Reiner and Brooks won a Grammy in 1998 for their 2,000-year-old man in the year 2000. Reiner, of course, won multiple Emmys for his television work. In the year 2000, he received the Kennedy Center Mark Twain Prize for Humor. Apparently, when the sound system failed at the start of the ceremonies, Reiner called from the balcony, Does anyone have four AA batteries? Dick Van Dyke called Reiner kind, gentle, compassionate, empathetic, and wise. George Clooney said he made every room he walked into funnier, smarter, kinder. Steve Martin said goodbye to, quote, my greatest mentor in movies and in life. Thank you, dear Carl. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week.